Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, March 9th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Tucker Carlson defends his January 6th footage commentary. A new report claims a pro-Ukraine group was likely behind the Nord Stream pipeline attack. Protests erupt in Georgia over a proposed foreign agent law. Wagner's chief claims control over eastern Bakhmut. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says U.S. troops will remain in Iraq. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy confirms plans to meet with Taiwan's president. China blasts Germany over its reported plan to ban Huawei and ZTE from 5G networks. Texts reveal Tucker Carlson passionately hated Trump. France faces more massive strikes. And Californians are warned to prepare for another atmospheric river. In our top story, Tucker Carlson defends his January 6th footage commentary. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, The Hill, Daily Mail, and Yahoo Life. Fox News host Tucker Carlson has defended his commentary accompanying newly released footage of the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots, arguing that they contradicted lies told by the Democratic Party and anti-Trump Republicans. On Monday, he released previously unseen footage showing Jacob Chansley, a Navy veteran commonly known as QAnon Shaman, being escorted by police through the Capitol building. Carlson argued that this and other footage proved most people were peaceful and nonviolent. Capitol Police Chief J. Thomas Manger criticized Carlson's Monday night show as offensive with misleading conclusions, while Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, also disagreed with his interpretation of the videos. Carlson's commentary focused on Chansley in particular, who would later be imprisoned for four years for obstructing an official proceeding. He argued, The tapes show the Capitol Police never stopped Jacob Chansley. They helped him. They acted as his tour guides. He further argued that politicians in both parties are all on the same side in their efforts to censor video footage from January 6th. In his next show, Carlson interviewed Tarek Johnson, a former Capitol Police officer, who criticized then-head of the Intelligence Service Yogananda Pittman for not responding to his requests for direction and for failing to evacuate the Capitol. Capitol Hill police previously responded to Johnson's criticism, saying he wasn't in Pittman's chain of command and his statements were baffling. Thank you, Eric. On the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Eric just laid out the facts of that story. We're going to start off our first round of narrative spins here with an establishment critical narrative provided by the Chris Hedges report. It's true that some of the Capitol rioters committed violent crimes and many probably hold questionable views. However, there has been substantial over-prosecution and mistreatment of many. The courts are being used for politically motivated retribution, something which has been done, albeit more severely, against anti-war activists, left-wingers, reformers, and entirely innocent Muslims post-9-11. If we're not careful, many who are championing the current mistreatment of January 6th defendants will regret it tomorrow when the same state institutions are turned upon them. ABC News gives us a pro-establishment narrative. What happened on January 6, 2021 was a violent riot, and Tucker Carlson, with the help of Kevin McCarthy, is dangerously fueling right-wing conspiracy theories. 
Carlson is cherry-picking footage to show the overall events as peaceful, but they are lacking in context. Even McCarthy himself called the attack on the Capitol undemocratic, un-American, and criminal in the days immediately following January 6th. However, he appears to be trying to have his cake and eat it too, as he has only given Fox News access to the 40,000 hours of Capitol Hill footage thus far. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. An intelligence report suggests that a pro-Ukraine group was behind the Nord Stream attack. And here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Sky News, Guardian, Politico, CNN, and Seymour Hersh. On Tuesday, the New York Times reported that new U.S. intelligence indicates that a pro-Ukrainian group of saboteurs perpetrated the attack on the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines running between Russia and Germany last year. According to the unnamed officials, those responsible for the attack were most likely Russian or Ukrainian nationals, or a combination of the two, standing in opposition to Russian President Vladimir Putin. However, the intelligence review provided no details about the members of the group or who directed or paid for the operation. Meanwhile, German media reported that investigators believe the bombing was carried out by a six-member team using a yacht rented from a Polish-registered company owned by two Ukrainian nationals. On September 6th, the group allegedly departed from the German port city of Rostock to transport explosives to the site of the attack. German public prosecutors claim to have discovered traces of explosives, pointing to the possible involvement of Ukrainians in the blasts. But investigators found no evidence that Ukrainian authorities ordered or were involved in the attack, according to a joint German media investigation. Meanwhile, Mikhailo Podolyak, a senior advisor to Ukrainian President Zelensky, denied both that the Ukrainian government was involved in the pipeline attacks and that Kyiv had any knowledge of a suspected pro-Ukrainian sabotage group. While the U.S. and NATO dubbed the September 26, 2022 attacks, which severely damaged the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines as act of sabotage, Russia blamed the West for the explosions and urged an independent investigation. Last month, investigative journalist Seymour Hersh made bombshell claims that the U.S. was behind the attack, though Washington has fully rejected this. Thank you, Adam, for the facts. Two spins have emerged. The first one is an establishment critical narrative coming from al The mysterious so-called intelligence leaked to the Western media is clearly a deliberate media campaign to divert the public's attention after Pulitzer Prize-winning U.S. journalist Seymour Hersh published his report proving that Washington is behind the attacks on European critical infrastructure. However, the wild speculations that are now mushrooming ultimately point to one thing the need for an independent and transparent investigation to identify and finally punish the real perpetrators. And also a pro-establishment narrative provided by Al-Arabiya. The new findings are explosive, yet it is too early to jump to conclusions, as the attack on the pipelines could have also been a false flag operation to blame Ukraine and discredit it among its Western allies. Moreover, the new evidence suggests that the Ukrainian government had nothing to do with the blasts, and the investigations by Germany, Sweden, and Denmark will eventually reveal the truth. Until then, 
the West and Ukraine must remain united in the fight against the Russian invasion. In our next story, protests erupt in Georgia after Parliament passes a foreign agent law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Washington Post, BBC News, Eurasian Net, New York Times, and Voice of America. Protests erupted in Belize, Georgia on Tuesday after the nation's parliament passed its first reading of a hotly debated law on foreign agents as thousands gathered outside of the building, holding national and EU flags. Some protesters were seen storming barricades and throwing stones and petrol bombs, while police responded with tear gas and water cannons. The Interior Ministry stated that an organized attack marred protests that were initially peaceful, adding that at least 50 security officers suffered injuries and 66 demonstrators were arrested. Thousands of protesters took to the streets once again on Wednesday to protest against the proposed bill, which could impact Georgia's chances of joining the EU as the bloc's top diplomat, Joseph Burrell, deemed it incompatible with EU values and standards. The draft law has sparked concern that Georgia is reproducing Russian legislation that affects media agencies and nonprofit groups, while the government argues that it's copying America by controlling foreign influence. Georgian President Salome Zarabichvili promised to veto the controversial law, but her role has limited power, and the governing Georgia Dream Party has enough votes to override. This bill, which, if ratified, would require organizations operating within Georgia and receiving more than 20% of its funding from international sources to register as a foreign agent or incur fines, is backed by Prime Minister Georgi Garabishvili. Thank you, Eric. Our first spin to start off the narratives is from Amnesty. The Georgian parliament needs to reject any and all legislation aimed at marginalizing and oppressing the media and organizations with foreign funding. It's clear that they're trying to discredit democracy and set human rights aside, instead of sidelining those working for the greater good of Georgians. They should be guaranteeing and safeguarding the rights of civil society. Narrative B comes from OC Media. Though critics may be accusing Georgia of aligning its policies with Russia, this bill follows in the spirit of the U.S. Foreign Agents Registration Act. This effort has the full backing of the parliamentary majority, as it will bring financial transparency to Georgia. Once in effect, Georgians will clearly see the lengths that the West is willing to go to forcefully drag Georgia into their aggression against Russia. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They've got one for this story that says there's a 4% chance that Georgia will impose sanctions against Russia before 2024. In an update on the situation in Ukraine, looking at day 373, where the chief of Wagner claims that they have control over eastern Bakhmut. And here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Associated Press, Understanding War, CNN, and Ukrainska Pravda. Ivigny Pogozhin, head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner PMC, on Wednesday claimed that his forces have taken control of the eastern part of the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, known as Artyomovsk in Russian. Wagner PMC units have occupied the entire eastern part of Bakhmut, he said. Everything east of Bakhmuta River is completely under the control of the Wagner PMC. Ukrainian officials haven't commented on the claim. However, the advance was confirmed by the Institute for the Study of War, or the ISW, a U.S. military think tank that closely follows the fighting in Ukraine. 
In its latest assessment, ISW said geolocated footage posted on March 6th and 7th shows Russian positions in eastern Bakhmut within 200 meters of the Bakhmuta River and Russian forces comfortably operating in areas in eastern Bakhmut where they previously had not been observed, supporting previous Russian claims that Russian forces captured the eastern part of Bakhmut and that Ukrainian troops have withdrawn to central and western Bakhmut. Meanwhile, contradicting analysis from U.S. officials that the capture of Bakhmut would be inconsequential. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Tuesday told CNN that defense of the city is important because it prevents Russia from advancing elsewhere in Donetsk. We understand that after Bakhmut, they could go further, he said. They could go to Kramatorsk. They could go to Slavyansk. It would be open road for the Russians after Bakhmut to other towns in Ukraine, in the Donetsk direction. In the meantime, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, arrived in Kyiv where he will hold talks with Zelensky on negotiations surrounding the Black Sea grain deal, set to expire on March 18th, unless an extension with Russia is agreed. Russian officials have repeatedly warned they could withdraw, citing claims that Russian exports of grain and fertilizer haven't been unblocked as promised in the agreement. Elsewhere, the latest prisoner swap between Russia and Ukraine was conducted on Tuesday. Officials from both countries confirmed. Russian officials said 90 of its servicemen were returned, while Ukrainian officials said 130 of its defenders, made up of 126 men and four women, were freed. Adam, thanks for the update. With tragedy in Ukraine, we have several spins, beginning with Narrative A coming from CNN. Even if Russia takes control of Bakhmut, it should not be seen as a failure for Ukraine. They have inflicted extremely heavy losses on Russian forces and the logistical problems that have dogged Russia throughout the war remain. It will not be able to overcome these challenges to make further gains in Ukraine. And Narrative B provided by TASS. Russia's capture of Bakhmut is strategically important, as this has been the logistics hub for Ukraine's forces in the rest of Donetsk. Its capture would also open up further roads of Russian advance in the region. We have a nerd narrative for this story as well, coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 77% chance that Russia will control any formerly Ukrainian territories other than LPR, DPR, or Crimea on January 1st, 2024. The Pentagon chief visits Iraq and says U.S. troops will remain. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, New York Times, Al Jazeera, and Forbes. According to the U.S. press pool following Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in his unannounced trip to Iraq, he stated on Tuesday that U.S. troops are, quote, ready to remain in Iraq. Just days before the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq that ousted Saddam Hussein from power. This comes as Iraqi Prime Minister Muhammad al-Sudani has previously supported allowing the continued presence of U.S. troops, which are reportedly there to train and advise Iraqi forces. Austin is the most senior official in the Biden administration to visit Baghdad, with his travel reportedly being designed to support al-Sudani's efforts against Iranian influence in Iraq and reaffirm the U.S.'s military partnership. He stressed that U.S. forces in Iraq are focused on defeating the Islamic State group IS, adding that attacks on U.S. troops compromise that operation. Iranian drones have allegedly targeted military camps housing U.S. soldiers in Iraq and Syria. Though the U.S. withdrew its forces in 2011, 
Thousands of soldiers were sent back to Iraq and neighboring Syria three years later to support local forces in fighting IS, which seized swaths of territory in both countries in 2014. 2,500 troops are currently stationed in Iraq, with 900 others deployed to Syria, according to Reuters. IS was ousted from Iraq in 2017 and territorially defeated in 2019, but a low-intensity IS insurgency continues in both countries. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with an establishment critical narrative provided by Press TV. The nearly 20-year occupation of Iraq must immediately come to an end especially as the Iraqi army has shown it is ready to and capable of ensuring the country's security and stability alone. Though the U.S. claims its 2,500 strong force is present only to advise, mounting tensions between Washington and Tehran risk dragging Iraq into an open conflict. Baghdad has to restore its national sovereignty as soon as possible. A pro-establishment narrative comes from Associated Press. The U.S.-Iraq strategic partnership is vital to ultimately defeating IS, as well as to ensure the security and stability of the entire Middle East, as Tehran has consistently meddled in Iraqi affairs for two decades to undermine its sovereignty. In addition to closely working with Washington, Baghdad should also be looking into improving relations with other Arab nations to bring prosperity to the country. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy confirms a planned meeting with Taiwan's President Tsai. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNBC, Financial Times, Independent, and Reuters. Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House of Representatives, confirmed on Tuesday his plans to meet Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen on U.S. soil this year, as she is reportedly set to stop in California and New York in April on her way to visit diplomatic allies in Central America. Two sources who spoke to Reuters on the condition of anonymity on Monday claimed that Tai had already been invited to speak at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California, with one of them stressing that this meeting does not rule out McCarthy visiting Taiwan in the future. Though McCarthy had last summer expressed his desire to visit Taiwan, hosting this meeting in the U.S. would likely avoid any aggressive military response from Beijing, as tension rose last year after then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei. Taiwan's presidential office has stated that, concerning overseas visits, the planning of an itinerary was underway and that any news would be explained in a timely manner when established not directly mentioning the U.S. China on Wednesday expressed its serious concerns about a possible meeting between McCarthy and Tai, with PRC Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning revealing they have reached out to the U.S. asking for clarification over the matter. Thank you, Adam. This story has generated several spins, and the first one is an anti-China narrative coming from Asia Times. The only thing worse than the U.S. intervening and failing to stop China's potential takeover of Taiwan would be for the U.S. to do nothing at all. Such a decision would be devastating for America's credibility and would severely damage the value of alliances with the U.S. Consequently, America, the West, and its allies must work together, take a clear stand, and continue to confront PRC adventurism against its neighbors. And also a pro-China narrative provided by China Daily. While Tai has made diplomatic journeys in years prior, the situation between Taiwan, the U.S., and China has drastically changed in recent times. 
no matter where Ty and McCarthy meet, to do so would be a clear act of provocation. The Taiwan question is an internal matter and should be left alone by the United States, who long ago agreed to the one-China policy. Oxford Political Review is giving us a cynical narrative for this story. A military confrontation between China and the U.S. over Taiwan would endanger not only both superpowers, but the rest of the world. Both have exaggerated Taiwan's ideological, economic, and strategic importance to get the better of one another, and has continued to happen for decades. Both sides must step back from overinvesting in the inflated necessity of seeing their goals in Taiwan fulfilled for the sake of the world. And our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community have a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 68% chance that the U.S. will respond with military force if China invades Taiwan before 2035. But anytime after 2035, they can do whatever they want. That's right. China blasts Germany over reported plan to ban Huawei and ZTE. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, South China Morning Post, Reuters, NPR Online News, Wall Street Journal, and TechHQ. On Tuesday, the Chinese embassy in Berlin strongly voiced opposition to Germany's reported plan to ban tech giants Huawei and ZTE from its 5G network for potential security risks. Classifying the German government's decision as hasty and without factual basis, the embassy said it was puzzled over Germany's alleged abuse of state power to interfere in the market in its cooperation with China. The embassy's remarks come after Reuters reported on Monday that Germany is planning to ban telecom companies from using certain components from Huawei and ZTE deemed to be directly or indirectly controlled by the government of another state. Germany's Interior Ministry also confirmed the report, noting it's important for German mobile operators to not be too reliant on certain providers. The ministry added that if security risks are discovered, operators will have to remove and replace all unsafe components from their networks. Chinese vendors like Huawei and ZTE account for 59% of the components in Germany's 5G radio access network, which connects devices to other parts of a mobile network using a radio link and is distinct from the security-sensitive core network. The Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance members, the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand, have already banned Huawei from their 5G networks because of national security concerns. Thank you, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative provided by the Council on Foreign Relations. The existence of Chinese components in 5G networks poses the potential to contain backdoors that would allow the Chinese government access to critical data, posing a serious security risk. In the past, China has violated international sanctions and stolen intellectual property, and there is no reason why it could not commit cyber espionage again. Germany must not ignore the evidence that China manipulates Huawei and ZTE equipment through software updates and could disrupt its military communications. China Daily gives us a pro-China narrative. Germany's discriminatory business environment violates economic laws and the principle of fair competition. For decades, Chinese companies have complied with local laws and safety standards. However, Anti-China forces are now working to isolate Chinese technology at the U.S.'s behest as its ties with China sour over Taiwan and the Ukraine crisis. It's a battle of tech supremacy between the U.S. and China. By politicizing the economic matter, Germany is on the verge of losing its biggest trading partner. Germany better be careful or else they're going to get a balloon sent their way. You know what? 
They're next on the list. A round of texts reveal that Fox's Tucker Carlson passionately hated Trump. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NBC, Business Insider, USA Today, CNN, and Huffington Post. New court filings from the Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox revealed text messages from popular Fox host Tucker Carlson stating that he, quote, passionately hated former President Trump. In a January 4, 2024 text message to an unidentified recipient, Carlson wrote, We are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. Carlson also said that he, quote, blew up at the White House advisor Peter Navarro, who admitted to devising a scheme to overturn the 2020 election. Carlson went on to say, I actually like Peter, but that he could not handle the fallout from the previous election. The text seemed to conflict with Carlson's public stance on Trump, as the conservative Fox News host has been an ally and defender of the former president. The messages are the latest in a wave of documents being made publicly available from Dominion's lawsuit, claiming that Fox knowingly lied and promoted conspiracy theories about the voting company regarding the 2020 election. Carlson has recently been in the news as his show has been airing footage from the January 6th Capitol riots, which claimed to show the alleged insurrection in a different light. Thank you, Adam, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from Salon. Tucker Carlson's private messages reveal his true feelings for Donald Trump. These messages reflect so poorly on both Carlson and Trump because they expose that Carlson is a phony and a grifter who will say anything for money, while the messages also show that even Trump's closest allies think he's a terrible and destructive force. And, of course, a left narrative is going to be followed up by a right narrative, and this one's provided by Threadreader App. Tucker Carlson's personal opinion of Donald Trump is quite irrelevant, and Tucker has and will continue to support President Trump because he cares about America. The texts are also two years old and happened at a very contentious time, so they are probably not indicative of Carlson and Trump's current relationship. In our next story, a massive strike in France over pension reform. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, France 24, CNN, South China Morning Post, and New York Times. France's Interior Ministry estimates that 1.28 million people participated in a nationwide strike against French President Macron's plans to raise the retirement age to 64. Unions are calling for a nationwide day of strikes and demonstrations to protest the government's proposed pension reform. The unions hope to repeat the success of their first major protest on January 19th, when more than a million people demonstrated. The country's unions have vowed to bring the country to a standstill over Macron's proposed changes. Laurent Berger, leader of the CFDT union, said on Monday, I call on all the country's employees, citizens and retirees who are against the pensions reform to come out and protest en masse. He added that President Macron cannot remain deaf to protesters. Workers at oil refineries across France blocked oil deliveries. Strikes also left thousands without electricity and disrupted schools, airports and trains. President Macron has placed pension reform at the center of his re-election campaign, but he faced strong pushback from both parliament and the public, with almost two in three people supporting protests against the proposed changes. 
Macron and his administration say they need to change France's pension system to put it on a firmer financial footing because life expectancy is rising and the ratio of workers to retirees is decreasing. The French National Assembly is debating a bill to reform the pension system. The government hopes the legislation will pass by the end of the month. Thank you, Eric. We have a left narrative provided by Le Monde. The determination and spirit shown by the unions and the left-leaning parties are not just an ideological attack against Macron's policies, but also a preemptive strike against the threat of Marine Le Pen's far-right politics. The risk of the Reassemblement National is on everyone's mind, and to fight against such danger via strikes and protests is no longer a moral struggle, but a moral obligation. A right narrative comes from Le Figaro. While the central parties, with the help of the left, seek to use the strikes to pressure the government, there is no guarantee of success. Much is dependent on whether the unions will decide to follow up on their protests, which will only be decided on the evening of demonstrations. And in our final story, Californians are warned to prepare for another atmospheric river. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, CBS, New York Post, and the L.A. Times. On Wednesday, California officials warned more than 16 million residents under flood watches to prepare for an onslaught of rain and snowmelt that could lead to substantial flooding beginning on Thursday. This warning comes as back-to-back severe winter storms have slammed the state, leaving residents and hikers stranded for extended periods without supplies. The National Weather Service said that the combined atmospheric river and winter storm system could lead to high snow levels, with the most snow expected in central California. The atmospheric river could rate a level 3 of 5 on the measurement scale for the weather phenomenon. The low-pressure systems are expected to combine and dump 2 to 3 inches of rain into coastal areas, and higher elevations could see as much as 3 to 5 inches. Climate scientists have expressed concern that wildfire burn scars could exacerbate conditions across the state. The 2021 Dixie and Caldor fire burn scar areas are now made up of soil that is water repellent and lacks rooted vegetation to hold back water. The rain will flow directly into creeks and waterways in the Sacramento and San Joaquin River systems. In preparation for the storm, emergency service officials in Big Sur, Monterey County, have asked residents and businesses to stockpile enough essentials to last for two weeks. In addition to asking residents to prepare to hunker down, the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services will open seven shelters in six communities that they expect to take the brunt of the storm. Thank you, Adam, for the facts. Let's look at the spins. The first one is Narrative A coming from Washington Post. Climatologists have learned that California has a long history of flooding at the hands of these atmospheric rivers. Even with disaster after disaster, the state still has not invested in infrastructure to properly handle these gully washers. There have been many discussions and plans for a reservoir that would store floodwaters and deliver the water to those in need, as the state also faces severe drought. Unfortunately, nothing has come to fruition. How hard is it, after decades of inaction, to arrive at and implement a long-term solution? And our final narrative is provided by The Hill. Governor Gavin Newsom has been and continues to be a champion for climate change adaptation in California. In addition to preparing for impacts, he has rocketed the state to being the nation's leader, championing climate actions aimed at reducing emissions. 
Newsom was willing to take on the Trump administration to do what was just and best for the planet. In doing so, he has shined a light on himself to even eye the presidency one day. And California's bold climate policies are a major reason. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, March 9th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.